Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. We have an amazing show for you. Mark has um, cornered an amazing man to be on the show today who has a history that, you know, is just awesome as heck. And uh, Mark always, always surprises me with the amazing people that he finds to get on the show and share their life and their information and their insight and their wisdom with and talent as well. So, uh, without further ado, Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Barbara. How are, how are you today? Doing very, did, very did, well. Thank you. Uh, uh, did you get uh, in, any sleep after putting together last night's show? <laughs> I, got, <laughs> I got about three hours sleep, yes. <laughs> it was a challenge, okay. but it was no. worth it, and it's, it's it's fun to know you can do things like that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that was uh, an excellent show with Merle last night, and you know, we'll try to get through th- this show with the uh, pole shifting happening, and hopefully we aren't going to lose power. But uh, um, would prefer to yeah, not. To, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, get yeah, you know, got a little. Uh, Sciency last night, um, but uh, yeah, today's the conclusion of our trilogy of musical shows. Um, you know, listeners may think we're trying to apply for a job with Rolling Stone or Vintage <laughs> Guitar magazines, but um, you know, we'll hear about that in a little bit. Um, and I guess this week, uh, happen to have projects becoming available, and we want to help get the word out and. Uh, Barbara and I are honored that they want to share their news uh, with us and and all of our listeners on Nightlight. And um, today's show is going to continue some of Merle's discussion about uh, Jimi Hendrix, and we'll hear a lot more about Woodstock as well. Uh, Our guest today is the legendary bluesman and guitar virtuoso Arlen Roth. 
perhaps you saw him on a stadium tour with Simon and Garfunkel or learned to play guitar by watching his Hot Licks guitar tutorial videos. Uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about his role in the movie Crossroads or uh, being involved with the foundation of the Blues Brothers. Arlen is our uh, guest for the next two hours. To Hello discuss there, the release. here I am. Do yeah, there you are. Yeah. Okay. Yep. There, Trying to find a moment to like, jump in there, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and Arlen, you have two uh, new CDs you uh, we're going to be talking about and all kinds of other yeah. aspects of your astonishing yeah. the career. The new CD is really the Telemasters, and the mm-hmm. second CD is one I'm doing with John Sebastian. That won't be out for a few months from now, but the Telemasters is coming out this month, so <clears throat> that's a big one. That's really a big one. Okay. Okay. So, so um, what is the, you know, this is your 16th solo CD. I think so, yeah. Well, I've had solo vinyl before there were CDs, so it's, I would say, my 16th solo album. Okay. And yeah. what is. Yeah, the concepts behind working with the Telemaster or the Telecaster guitar for the Telemaster CD. Well, I, I, it's a follow-up to my Slide Guitar Summit, <clears throat> which was a very big album worldwide, and that was mm-hmm. me and other people like Johnny Winter and others playing slide guitar. Because I've always been considered sort of a specialist in slide guitar. And I had nine guests on that album, and I said, you know, a good follow-up to that, I had released my Acoustic Rolling Stones album in between, and I said a good follow-up would be to go down to Nashville again and gather together all my Telecaster-playing buddies and some people who I respected and who respect me but who we never met before, like a guy like Steve Warner and... You know, Vince Gill I knew, and but Brad Paisley I never met before, and all that kind of stuff. So we did a, a very ambitious project. So I've got 14 Telecaster Masters on the album, you know, me included. And I'm doing duets with all of them, and I have one song on there that's just me, and there's another song on there with just me and my daughter, Lexi, who's a great singer and songwriter in her own right, and she sang um, Tennessee Waltz. So, you know, it's just just a a very ambitious project. It took a long time because some of these folks were just so busy, you know. But we got Joe Bonamassa on there, Albert Lee, um, Vince Gill, Steve, Steve Cropper, the wonderful rhythm and blues guitar player, um, on Bill and on Kirchen. and on. Bill Kirchin, Jerry Donahue, Johnny Highland, um, Brent Mason, who's the top Nashville studio guitar player and has been for over 20 years. Um, some of these folks had done videos for me in the past when I had Hot Licks. You know, you had mentioned the Hot Licks mm-hmm. tutorial the Hollicks videos. So some of them had done videos for me, 
and some of them actually had learned from those videos. You know, I came full circle with Hot Licks in terms of uh, some people who I ended up signing to Hot Licks were actually people who had originally learned from Hot Licks. So, like Johnny Highland, you know, he said, he said, we used to have to drive 70 miles up in Maine just to get a Hot Licks video. And uh, next thing you know, he, you know, six or seven years later, he was doing two of them for, for me, you know, so. And, and how, how do you go about you know, assembling in, you know, the, these big name, um, uh, you know, legendary artists like Albert Lee and Steve Well, they're my buddies. They're my friends. They're my peers. You know, they have just as much respect for me as I do for them. So it's not, I mean, you know. In the old days with Hot Licks, it was kind of like at first I had to chase people down <clears throat> because nobody wanted to teach on video or audio tape. I started with audio tapes long before video when I was living right beneath the World Trade Center and in a loft in New York City. And uh, me and my wife uh, to be at that time, Deborah, uh, you know, I said, well, look, we only have a tiny bit of money left to our names. Uh, there were no tours happening at that point. I was sort of like on the road six months, then off the road six months. And at this point, then it was after the Phoebe Snow tour in 1979, and the phone wasn't ringing. I wasn't getting any work, but I was, of course, teaching, always teaching students in between tours. So I said, you know, $1,500 is going to get us a big half-page ad in Guitar Player Magazine, where I was already well-known. And uh, $500 bought me a used tape recorder across the street. And uh, I started it out with 48 lessons, 48, you know, audio cassettes. And then in 1984, when I was doing that film Crossroads you mentioned, that's when I went <laughs> into video. But uh, it's never been, a, you know, it's not really a problem because these guys all know me. I mean, like Steve Warner, who was a big country star, all his sons, his kids showed up at the studio because they wanted to meet me because they all learned from my videos. You know, they're like, we want to meet you. We want to get your autograph. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, these guys are <laughs> his son. I guess he was too busy to teach them. But, uh, you know, it's just it's a great feeling to be able to know that you've had that much of an effect on people when you don't even realize it. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. I think Hot Licks has probably done two and a half million videos uh, in terms of sales, but you can imagine the pass-on thing, and also now that people just kind of watch them on, on YouTube, unfortunately, that doesn't make anybody any money, but uh, they uh, they watch it. So there's probably tens of millions who have been uh, learning from my tapes, and it just doesn't mean me. I also documented 180 artists uh, over the course of 220 videos. So, okay. But, you know, guys like Brent Mason, he did one for me 20 years ago. Joe Bonamassa did one for me when he was only 21 years old. Um, you know, uh, Johnny Highland did two of them for me. So, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of... Um, 
a lot of history that I have with these guys, but but most of all, we just all respect each other as players, and we're, I mean, it took two seconds to get any of them. They all wanted to be a part of such a big project. And you just mentioned uh, Joe Bonamassa. Uh, he's on uh, yep. Telemaster. Yeah, he just really seems to be one of those uh, names that has captured people's attention. You know, just uh, very quickly. Uh, he's you know, you know uh, worked with uh, Eric Clapton. He's just uh, uh, like the uh, next generation of. Uh, blues uh, musicians. You know, uh, what's what's it like working with the you know, the next generation of up and coming uh, blues guys? Are they, they keeping things pretty uh, traditional? Or are they branching out into other? Um, uh, well, he's really more He's more of a solo artist who I would say is influenced by the blues, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's got a lot of sides to him. See, when he did his video for me when he was 21, it was still kind of like Joe Bonamassa doing various, I won't say imitations, but showing his influences very strongly. For example, when he played on this album... It's a complete Albert Collins, uh, mm. you know, tribute. It's exactly like Albert Collins. And, of course, Albert Collins was the first guy who was called Master of the Telecaster, probably named by himself, you know. Now they call me the Master of the Telecaster. I said, well, this album is going to be lots of Masters of the Telecaster, you know, and dedicated to uh, many of the greats. But yeah, Bonamassa—it's uncanny how he was able to sound and phrase exactly like Albert Collins, you know. Uh, and then by the end of that song, we're in like a frenzy of, of you know, blues guitar insanity. <laughs> but um, he's, you know, he has very strong influences: Danny Gatton, Albert Collins, uh, Eric Johnson, you know. Uh, and Eric Johnson himself is a very eclectic player, you know. He was the biggest selling artist that we ever had on Hot Licks, you know, besides me. But Eric Johnson did two videos for me that were huge, huge sellers and won all kinds of awards and stuff. Another aspect of uh, Telemasters that uh, you just brought up is that you, you were working with your daughter, Lexi. Um mm-hmm. You know, how is, you know, working with family in in the studio, is that uh, going smoothly? Uh, Are there other challenges involved with it? How does does that work? Um, Gee, uh, well, I think because we're both professionals, we try Mm -hmm. to just keep it about the music. <clears throat> you know, because mm-hmm. um, she also sang on the Les Paul tribute album that I played on with Keith Richards and everybody, and she did Via Condios on that. 
Uh, and, you know, she's very focused. She's an actress. She's a chef. She's uh, She does all kinds of incredibly demanding things, and she's, like, very dedicated and probably the hardest working person I've ever known in my life. And she... You know, when we get in there, it's 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 all business. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. when it's father and daughter, you got to be a little careful in terms of uh, how you handle things. But I handle everybody carefully, so it's not. It doesn't really affect affect it too much. It it makes it happier. I mean, I'm proud, so proud of her. You know, so mm-hmm. it makes it really a a joyful thing for the both of us. And of course I produced her first album when she was only 15 or 16 years old. And then she sang on that album with me and Levon Helm. So Mm -hmm. I love bringing her in on projects and giving her that experience, you know, the experience of, of, okay, this is what it's like to work with this one and this one, you know, and, and then she's also learning as I'm doing that. She's learning about these legendary People like Levon Helm, or, or you know, doing all those things. So um, it was really cool because she did Tennessee Waltz on this album. Originally, it was supposed to be an instrumental with me and Vince Gill, but Vince Gill wanted to do a different song, so I ended up doing Satisfied Mind with Vince, you know, instrumentally. And then I said, Well, Lexi, this is your perfect opportunity to do this song, and. That's why I wrote on the thing, I said, you know, on the album, I said, she's going to introduce Tennessee Waltz to a whole new generation. So hopefully that'll happen. Okay. And is uh, Telemasters like a a mix of rock and country? A lot of blues, a lot of country, a lot of rock, some jazz. Because one oh, of the okay. things that you want to will know is that it's a, it, the Telecaster is just a guitar. It's just a model of the guitar. And uh, I don't want it to be stereotype or um, typecast because a lot of people in country music play tellies, you know. I said, well, but the Telecaster is also for blues and also for rock and also for jazz. That's the beauty of it. It's the first electric guitar the first solid body electric guitar that there ever was. So it's kind of like they got it right the first time, you know, and uh, it's a, it's an incredible design. It's so functional. And um, so you could play really any form of music on it that you could possibly dream of. It's just a creative tool, you know, it's such a creative tool. So uh, that's like me, you know, I pick it up and I just, I just play I'm not thinking of rock, blues, country, rockabilly, jazz. I'm not thinking that. I, I don't think in terms of bags anyway. I don't like the way Danny Gatton used to call it. Like, what bag do you play in? You know, I, it's an old expression. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't think of that. I just think of it as music. So the the guys on this album are pretty much the same way. I mean, you know, but career-wise, we have to get pigeonholed like oh this one's a country artist this one's a blues artist it's like you called me a blues guy when we first started this conversation and i don't think of myself as a blues guy you know i mean my roots are in the blues but my roots are just as in the country just as country too you know and rock and roll and 
you know, so who knows? Who knows? It's all it's all a mixed bag. That's what I love about this album. <clears throat> I mean, you're probably it's going to get probably in the Americana category, you know. That's that's the best way of describing it. You know. Okay. American it, music. It, all right, and and you mentioned that it, it, Telemasters is a, a companion piece to uh, your slide guitar summit, and yes, it, you know you have uh, Johnny Winter on uh, slide the slide summit. guitar summit on yeah his last studio recording. Yeah, you, know, you, you, know, you saw. Yeah. Him. At Woodstock, you know, what was that like? Uh, seeing <laughs> someone, it was basically an unknown person playing at Woodstock, and you know, fifty years later, uh, or, or nearly fifty years later, you're working with someone who you know, you know became one of your idols. Well, I saw uh, him you know, there. He was already a big name when he played at Woodstock because he was this legendary uh, blues guy, you know, he, it's like, Oh my God, he got, you know, he got a hundred thousand dollars, which at that time had been unheard of, you know? So there was all this hype about him that he actually got a hundred thousand dollars to sign his record contract. You know, that was a big deal. And of course he was, uh, he was albino, he's a blues guy, he played a lot of slide guitar, and then at Woodstock he brings out his other, his brother, also albino, you know, Edgar Winter. Mm-hmm. That was the first time anybody saw Edgar Winter, you know, so then Edgar comes out, and um, I was right in the front, in fact, me and Johnny talked about it, there's one clip on YouTube where we're sitting and talking about it, this guy did a movie... Uh, about it called Brass, Glass, and Steel, about the making of my album. And, mm-hmm. you know, the making of Arlen Roth's Slide Guitar Summit. So you see me sitting down with Johnny and recording and also um, talking about Woodstock and talking about Rocket 88. You know, Johnny goes, well, they say it was the first rock and roll song. He says, but it just sounds like blues to me, you know. <laughs> And then we're talking about Woodstock. He goes, "Oh, it was such a mess, such a because it really was such an incredible mess." I mean, when I saw him, I was standing in front. I was in two feet of mud, and I was pulling people off of the um, light extensions that were going down into the mud because they were all shorted out, and people were getting. Uh, they kept going, you know, they're barefoot. A lot of them were barefoot. And they're going, there's broken glass, broken glass. I said, that's not broken glass. You're getting shocks. So I had to pull these people off of these wires. They would slip and fall and grab a wire. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I remember feeling the electricity through them when I grabbed them and pulled them off. So it was pretty pretty uh, bad at that point because that's pretty much the end of the festival, you know. So it was just a lot of garbage, a lot of mud, um, and Johnny was on when Hendrix was supposed to be on. And by the time Hendrix came on, I could actually hear him from my front 
porch because we only lived uh, about three-quarters of a mile from the Woodstock site. I grew up in that town of White Lake, New York, like every summer. We had a summer house that was on the lake, in White Lake. So I was 16 then. And then when I was 17, we played the first Woodstock anniversary there. I had a band called Steel, who were living with me, uh, actually in college when I was in Philadelphia. And um, we were the only band. So we played for three days, and we played about four to five hours every day. And uh, there were supposedly thousands. I mean, I don't know the actual number. Somebody told me 40,000. I don't know if it was that many, but there were certainly thousands of people who came back that following year, which was 1970, you know, so. So, yeah, that was like part of my Woodstock experience. They just interviewed me up there. They had me up at Bethel Woods, and they're doing a, a film about the Woodstock generation and the Woodstock experience. So I got to tell all my stories, which ended up filling up four hours. <laughs> so. Did, did uh, when you and Johnny were talking in the studio, did he uh, talk about his work with uh, a Jimmy and you know, J- and uh, J- Jimmy just like really Jimmy didn't want to Jimmy Hendrix? Jimmy? Uh, no, he just talked about the fact that he was, you know, he said nobody knew when they were going on said you know like uh he said you know because when he went on that was supposed to be Jimi hendrix's slot but everything got backed up you know because Jimi hendrix the reason Jimi hendrix closed the festival was because he had a thing in his contract that he had to be the headliner he had to be the last performer unfortunately with that festival that meant that you were playing for the least amount of people because that was when everybody already was leaving you know, but they didn't know it was going to turn into Calcutta, you know. So, uh, so it was really, but, you know, I could walk back and forth. I walked back and forth every day because it was just walking distance from where I lived with a, with a half million people thrown in in between, you know. <laughs> it's pretty wild. So pretty it, wild. Yeah, it, it um, you know, you know, maybe you know, people are you know learn, learning you know, to, today that uh, you know, Johnny uh, uh, played at uh, Woodstock, and he, he doesn't show up on the uh, movie or you know, the CD. But you know, probably a lot of people don't know that Edgar uh, also uh, played you know, uh, you know Woodstock and. You know, Came in and played well, he brought uh, him sax. Out. He br- yeah. yeah, he brought him out. He was like, my brother Edgar, my brother Edgar. I'm like, Edgar? And then I realized he was saying Edgar, you know. My brother Edgar, my brother Edgar. And then boom, he came out. I'm like, what's this now, you know? And he played sax, and, you know, um, that was just very early on. But he just made him like part of his his set, you know, part of his show. But Johnny was phenomenal. I mean, he put on such a great show and I told him, I said, man, ever since that moment of me seeing you, that just was fantastic. It was so galvanizing. He, he was such a, you know, an electric performer, and he played so fast, you know. 
and and uh, there were a lot of fast players at that thing. Alvin Lee, you know, with ten years after, mm-hmm. also a great mm-hmm. performance, great performance. Uh, but yeah, Johnny was one of the last um, acts. He was like r- right before Hendrix, and uh, at that point, it was already the sun was starting to come up. You know, it was like four thirty in the morning, whatever it was. So uh, I went home, and then I could hear Hendrix just drifting across the lake. I could tell exactly when Hendrix was playing. You know, I could hear it. So it was pretty exciting, but it was uh, one of the best things about it was because being from White Lake, we were always worried that it was going to, like, destroy the area or whatever. But, but you know, the following years, the, the field there would just went back to just being a normal grassy field that, only those who were there would even know that it was where the Woodstock Festival was. You know, years later, they put that plaque there. And uh, uh, so that's how people knew. But otherwise, you just you had to actually know it yourself, you know. Because it was just, I loved how it just went back to nature. Now they have the Bethel Woods um, Concert Hall and Museum and everything there, which is really nice. They really, they really did a good job. With it, and it is yeah. Since since uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, is there some kind of reunion concert in the works? Yeah, from what I understand, I mean, I know Mike Lang, the guy who did the original festival, is going to be doing something up at uh, Watkins Glen, New York. Uh, which I think they had a big concert there at some point, maybe 10 years after the Woodstock Festival, whatever, but but it's at Watkins Glen. It's not where the Woodstock site was, but I think the where the Woodstock Festival actually was, I think they're going to have some kind of uh, concert celebration there as well, and I hope to be a part of that. Cool. You know, have to come, uh, come back uh, in the summer and tell us more about. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, what's uh, what's in the works as we get closer to the date? Yeah, I and, really and, don't know yeah. much about it. You know, I mean, I, I've I've had uh, a couple of emails and they were like very interested in doing it because I said, look, I mean, I didn't play Woodstock, but I played the first anniversary of Woodstock. You know. And plus, I'm from that town, and uh, I've made a name for myself, and I'd like to be a part of it. You know, uh, one of the things I heard that I, I think is terrible is that the other concert, the one that's going to be at Watkins Glen or wherever, they're doing like they're having all these like co- copy bands, you know, these cover bands, like mm-hmm. like that. That's got nothing to do with the, what this should be about, you know. Well, they're going to have like an artificial Jefferson Airplane band there. Are they going to have a a Grateful Dead copy band? They're gonna, like, get the people who are good, good now. You know, get just the way you did back then. And some of them are still alive, of course. You can have Santana. You could have mm-hmm. uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You could have um, any number John of people. John Fogarty. Who at, yeah, John Fogarty, who I really... I'm a huge fan of his. 
he told me he learned from my videos. <laughs> I was trying to get a gig playing with him. He's like, gig? He's like, you're my teacher. You're the reason I play better. I'm like, what? You're kidding me. <laughs> so John Fogarty, John Fogarty learned from my tapes. That's pretty. That was pretty amazing. I said, well, take me on the road, man. I'll I'll give you free lessons on the tour bus. <laughs> you know. It's like, come on, John. But he's he's great. He's phenomenal. I hope that happens. Uh, uh, stop on my area. I like to see that one. But yeah. yeah, you also have you know, on uh, you know the Telemasters and Sly Guitar Summit CDs. You know, you, you have return uh, artists like Jack Pearson from the Allman Brothers and mm-hmm. the wonderful Cindy Cash Dollar. You know, uh, what's it, what's it like working with? Uh, you know, Cindy. Uh, you know, she she's playing like uh, like a, a dobro. Uh, you know, no, she's playing steel artwork. guitar. She's she's oh, playing steel, steel guitar. guitar. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's great. She's also been you know playing a lot with me and my band too. You know, as part of my band, and I always knew of her, and um, she always knew of me. We had played on a couple of albums together without meeting. You know, I think we were on a couple of like Livingston Taylor albums and stuff, but we never met because the sessions were not at the same time. But she grew up in in the town of Woodstock, New York, and but she spent many many years uh, with um, Asleep at the Wheel and other artists, and she ended up living in Austin, Texas, for a long time. So now she's back in New York. She's moved back. And then we really got to know each other, and uh, we've done some concerts. We've actually done some concerts where it's just she and I with no band. We did something up at the Stone Mountain Arts Center in Maine. It was just me and her, and um, she's great like that. So, you know, she and I are both, uh, if you put our years together as sidemen, you know, it's like 100 years of experience. So she's played with a million people, and I've played with a million people. So it's great when we work off of each other like that because we have those similar kind of instincts, you know, those well-honed mm-hmm. natural instincts as as musicians. You know, she's she's great. She's really really amazing. And Jack Pearson is, you know, you you just can't say no to the guy because he's so phenomenal. He's so great at everything he does. I uh, put it. Telecaster in his hands, and he's a telly master, you know. With a slide guitar in his hands, he's a slide guitar master. He's just, he's he's amazing, and I love the way he sings. I think he's just a great singer. So, he wanted to contribute to this album, and I was like, sure. And in fact, he's the guy that brought in Joe Bonamassa too. Uh, oh. Bonamassa, Bonamassa had been doing some playing with him. Or, Somewhere, I think maybe it was in Nashville. He sat in with them or something, and so uh, Joe was like, "Man, I want to do that album too," you know. So that's why on that track, that's Joe's blues. It's me, Jack, and Joe. It's three on that. Hmm. That's okay. how that happened. And, okay, and uh, Jack is on the the. 
lead-off track, uh, Do What's Right on Slide Guitar Summit. And it, yeah, that's he, a great song, great song. Yeah, it it, it really is. And I, I, I thought he was a great uh, choice to, you know, uh, during his uh, stint with the Almonds. And yep. And I, you know, some of his other, uh, you know, videos you can find on YouTube. Uh, he's just phenomenal with. He's uh, amazing. Yeah, he's a master. Yeah, he jazz. Yeah. Anything he does, he can sit down and be the as good a mandolin player as anybody. I love the way he plays classical and flamenco stuff. Um, it was cool. He had uh, there was a show here in my town where he had he was playing with Les Brères, meaning like the brothers, and it's all the people who were either formerly in the Allman Brothers or had been in the Allman Brothers since the beginning. And so I, he called me up on stage, and I went up and played with them. It was amazing, you know, because uh, that's when Butch Trucks was still alive. And Jamo, mm-hmm. the other drummer, mm-hmm. and uh, the only thing that confused me was, you know, like when you bring up somebody and they're playing with you, and you're going to give them the cue, like play, you know, like usually you point or you nod your head or something <laughs> that lets you know it's time for me to play. All Pearson does is he stands in front of you and then he stares at your guitar, and I'm like. Why are you looking at my guitar like that? I realize, oh, that means I'm supposed to play. You know, like <laughs> like he'll stop the band, you know, just like stop. And then he's looking at the guitar like it's talking to him. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, I get it. You, this means I should play. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that with me before where they just like, they just look at the instrument and that means, oh, okay, I'm supposed to play. Because I'm up there, I'm trying to be really careful. You know, you got a whole bunch of great musicians on stage. I don't want to step on anybody. But uh, Jack is, you know, all of his takes, all of his songs on on both of those albums are one take. That's it, just Mm. one, two, three, let's go, you know, and including his vocals. He's singing while he's playing. So, you know, he, like me, we're, we're big believers in, you know, the spont- spontaneity and mm-hmm. and that your your first take is always going to be your best. So so it's great great working with Jack. I would say that makes him the easiest and also the for some people it would be hard, but for all of us it makes him the easiest guy in the world. You're in there 5 10 minutes and you're done. That's it, you know. I mean, the guy's got so okay. much music in him, and it just draws it out of all of us. You know, Tom Hambridge, the producer who just won that Grammy with uh, Buddy Guy the other night. Uh, Tommy, Tom's the drummer, too. So Tom was just like, boom. You know, he just took off like a freight train. It was it's so great working with Jack. Yeah, and on... Yeah, the Slide Guitar Summit. Uh, you have David Lindley, and it sounds like you two were having a great time. And he, you know, he's 
you know, was, uh, yeah, was pushing great. you to keep keep great. playing, and it, it, it it's really enjoyable hear, hearing that uh, uh, her, her mind is gone. Uh, yeah. uh, can, can you tell us a little because bit of like hair. working? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about working with David? He he, he sounds like a really uh, you know has a, a good sense of humor. Uh, oh yeah. You know, I, I, th- yeah. There's it, j- just something that comes off of that track that just really pulls pulls you in. Yeah. Well, the great thing about that track, well, you know, her mind is gone. I, I've always loved David, and we had played together once at a Nam show. Just at at Seymour Duncan's booth, you know, we just started playing, and he was playing some uh, reggae, and then he started talking like a Jamaican. You know, he he'll spend a whole day and not lose the accent. He'd be like, "Oh man, you play so good, man! I love how you play, man!" But he'll just keep on going. You know, that's him like for that whole day, and and so. I said, you know, I really want you to play on this album, and you're coming to New York. He was coming to New York to play at the Iridium, which was the club where Les Paul always held held uh, fort, you know, held uh, every Monday night. Les Paul played there for years, and I played with him many times there, and uh, I've performed there a lot too. But I said, you know, uh, why don't we go into the studio the day before, Oh, I don't. I don't like to record the day before I perform. Okay, David. Well, how about the day after? You? No, no, no. I don't like to perform. I don't like to record the day after I perform. <laughs> I said, well, I got an idea. How about you just call me up, have me come up on stage, and we will record live. And because I know that the Iridium had the uh, ability to have a make a good recording out of it, and. Because usually when you do a show at the Iridium, when you leave, they've already got CDs for people of the show. So they record it and they start printing them like right in the back, you know, before before people even pay their their, their tabs at the bar or whatever. So David said, that's a great idea, man. So, you know, he calls me up and we did that song. He had the idea to do Her Mind Is Gone. And... Uh, what was really sweet was, even though it was a live show and it was the last song of the night, he made sure we recorded it twice. So I had stuff to use in case I could get stuff from a better take, you know. So he's like, mm-hmm. come on, man, let's do it again. You know, I think he says that at the end of the song. He goes, you want to do it again? You know. <laughs> And he introduces me like I'm like this blue like all in rod, all in rod. I'm like, I never heard my name like that, you know. All in rod. And then uh only Tony Bird who was this African singer I used to play with, he'd go, All in rod, all right. So people thought my name was just Alright. Like it was just like a sound, you know. <laughs> and uh but uh but yeah, but you know, working uh David's just amazing. He's amazing. What a great musician and super funny guy. I mean, we had, you know, it's it's amazing. Like we never really did anything together before that, and it's as if we knew each other our whole lives, as if we had parallel experiences. You know, that's what it's like with these working with these people, like Cindy and David and and uh, Steve Warner. 
you walk in and you're instantaneously you're joined. You're joined at the hip. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, Arlene, you just mentioned the Iridium has in the CDs available of the show. Yeah, you know, just you know, before. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you can get out the door. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's you know YouTube uh, you know, videos that you know keeps artists um, in front of uh, listeners. You know, uh, way to get your uh, name out there, foot foot in the door. You know, uh, sure. you know how, however you want to use the forum. Um, but you know, how is all the social media, the new technology, uh, you know, helping you? I, I know, like sometimes, you know, these uh, you know media venues aren't paying you, but it, it does make the audience aware of you know who, who you are. So, how how have things changed with technology just in the last ten years or so? Well, I think YouTube is probably the greatest thing that's ever that ever came down the pike. You know, it's probably one of the greatest uh, accomplishments of humanity because you get to see almost all of humanity on YouTube. You know, it's like I could do a gig for six people, only six people showing up, but next thing you know, 10,000 people get to see it. You know, so everything is greatly accelerated and it brings your your viewers, you know, like I'll I'll See what a clip that I did that somebody may have um, recorded and put on, you know, YouTube, and I say, "Wow, that's a really I like that." And then I'll grab it and I'll put it on Facebook, where I've got thousands and thousands of people. And uh, next thing you know, everybody's learning about your your music more. You know, like even people who are already my fans, I can triple or quadruple the 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 uh output that I can give them that I can reach them with um I think it's I think it's great you know it really is great so uh it's one of the best things ever I mean my god I just can't believe it I mean I can I can grab the most esoteric things that I want to watch and all of a sudden there there they are you know so um I think it's a great, a great, great thing. I mean, it didn't help at all with my lessons because now everybody watches everything for free, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Even my Gibson lessons, which were, I had over a thousand lessons on Gibson.com, you know, Gibson guitars, and now a lot of those ended up on uh, YouTube just by people filming them from their computer or filming them from uh, their television sets. And putting it on YouTube as well, and you know some of them will have like seventy, eighty thousand views, you know, and it'll be like a mm-hmm. you know the full lesson or whatever it might be. Even my old Hot Licks lessons, there are Hot Licks lessons on there that are an hour and a half long, and they're in one shot, boom, you know. So that you know that changed everything really, you know. So. It, it, it. Orlin, on um, the side guitar summit, you know, a lot of the songs are more recent. 
uh, blues songs, you know, you're not going all the way back to, you know, the Robert Johnson days or, you know, the early Muddy Waters. Uh, it's just a little bit more contemporary. Well, some of them is, are. Some of them are. Like, that's my broom, and uh, that's a Robert Johnson song. Of course, we're doing it more on the Elmore James style, but mm-hmm. uh, some of it's pretty early, early stuff. But yeah, some of it's more contemporary. It's true. Is uh, Telemasters the same in the same vein? Where you know, it's a little bit more uh, uh, recent songs. I guess. I mean, a couple of them are my songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at something like Remington Ride, which kicks off the album, that's a very classic old steel guitar western swing piece, you know, by Herb Remington. Key mm-hmm. to the Highway, that's an old blues that Jack did in a contemporary way. Uh, White Lightning with Steve Cropper, that's a new piece that he wrote. Uh, Bunky, which I did with Brad Paisley, that's uh, a song that I recorded um, not even all that long ago. It was on an album about 12 years ago, an album I did called Landscape. And that's dedicated to my late daughter, Jillian, because when she was a baby, I used to call her Bunky. So that's for her. And Rumble... You know, Rumble, that's a classic old, you know, uh, stroll rock piece by uh, Link Ray, except I did it with Will Ray. I figured his name's close enough that he can do Rumble. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Robinson, obviously, with Albert Lee, that's, uh, you know, it's Simon and Garfunkel. I played that Mm -hmm. with them every every night in front of 100,000 people. Satisfied Mind is very old. Roadworthy is one of my songs, um, Tennessee Waltz, of course. So I think actually there's a lot of early traditional stuff on this album. You know, I did Ghost Riders in the Sky, which is the second time I've ever recorded that. Uh, Promised Land, that's Chuck Berry, you know. So I wanted to keep it eclectic, um, but I love paying tribute to the old songs, and and doing something new with them and letting them push, you know, letting it push the envelope. Um, like, you know, the minute I said Remington Ride to Steve Warner, he said, I have to do that. I've got to do that. He says, that is my song. He says, you can't give that to anyone else. I said, okay, you got it, man, you know. And uh, But most of the other songs I kind of chose – what would be what I thought would be appropriate for me and that artist, you know, it kind of evoked uh, their sound or their approach. You know, Bill Kirchin, I had this song called Tough Telly, which was like an instrumental that I had laying around for a long time. And I, I, I even kept writing it while I was in the studio. I kept coming up with parts, you know, um, as we were developing it in the studio. So, uh, very organic, you know, creative process. So, and then once you're done with the album, you're done. That's it. You walk away and okay. you start thinking about the next one. Okay. And and you just mentioned uh, Steve uh, Cropper. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah, and 
yeah, he, 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 he means a lot to me just you know, from watching uh, sure uh, gr- growing up watching uh the, the blues brothers movie and <laughs> you know you were uh I- involved with some yeah. of the early stages of the from blues the very brothers first day. and st- yeah very yeah, first day uh, can, can, yeah can, can can you tell us about <laughs> uh working with, with those guys? Well, I was very thankful that Dan Aykroyd let me talk about this on his show. He has a syndicated radio show called Elwood's Bluesmobile. And um, <clears throat> he had me on there. Uh, you know, he's, of course, being Elwood Blues. He's not being Dan Aykroyd, but he's there talking to me. And he let me talk about it because what, what happened was I was doing Saturday Night Live 1978 with Art Garfunkel because I was touring with Garfunkel that year and uh, all of a sudden John Belushi comes up to me and Aykroyd, they both come up and they go because you know it's a long process doing that show, you work on it for four days until you finally do it on Saturday so they said on, on Saturday night, you know you have three audiences you have one test audience then you have a live audience but it's not the live the Saturday Night Live yet and then finally the third show which is the live show the concept is that by the time you're on live television you're already blind from the experience and you just go through it and you don't care and you have no more nerves anymore and you're you're you know you're loose so he comes up to me with these shades and glasses and, you know, these shades and, and, and the hat. And he says, put these on. We're going to do this blues song and we're going to warm up the crowd. You know, we're just going to warm up the crowd. In fact, mm-hmm. I have pictures of me and Garfunkel and with Belushi and Blues Brothers outfit, the first time he ever put it on. And he says, but you got to teach me a song, man. I need to know a song. So I said, okay, here's Rocket 88, and which is the one that I did with Johnny Winter as well. Mm-hmm. But this is many years before that, and I said, and I, I remember I had to write the lyrics for him on a on a napkin, you know. He's going, we're standing in the hallway, going, oh yeah, I heard jalop, you heard noise they make, like he was trying to get the lyrics, and then we just went out and did it, you know. We warmed up the crowd, um, and you know, we used some of the band members from Saturday Night Live, who I think ended up becoming part of the Blues Brothers bit. You know, like Lou Marini mm-hmm. on saxophone and those kind of people. So that was really that was fun, just to like suddenly. Do, and they weren't called the Blues Brothers yet. They weren't called anything. It was just we're going to go up there. To me, it was like we're going to go up there. And we're going to pretend to be the the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. You know, that's what it looked like to me. Because you know they always had the shades and the hat and whatever. So uh, that was the beginning of it, and that was really, really cool because you got to realize at that point it was really blues. When they started doing it later on, to me it was really an imitation of Sam and Dave, which is like a you know a soul act. And of course, Steve Cropper, you know, was the original guy with all those people with Sam and Dave, with Wilson Pickett, with Otis Redding. You know, that's all uh, that's all Steve Cropper. So, uh, so you know, Cropper, <laughs> when he was shooting a little film, you know, during the making of my Telemasters, and Cropper goes, 
Well, I guess Arlen was busy while I was busy because I don't have any Arlen Roth stories. And I said, well, I got Steve Cropper stories. <laughs> you know, because when I was touring with John Prine in 1975, Cropper was producing his album. And then we all had a big party at Jose Feliciano's house. And I remember we were bowling. Like Jose Feliciano had a big bowling alley there at his his house. And Cropper rolled the pin, rolled the ball, and he only knocked down one pin just on the end. And I called him Cropper the Chopper because he just chopped. That's called a chop in bowling, you know. But uh, we had a great time, and you know. But he just didn't remember me from those days. But we had actually done other recording together as well, you know. But I was just a 21-year-old kid uh, back then, and he was this guy with the super long hair, and you know, who used to be used to have a crew cut, you know, with Booker T and the MGs. So, but he's he is fabulous, and he's just great to work with, and. Um, Loves to tell stories. You no, know, I mean, when we're doing that session, that kind of session, you know, it's like ninety percent stories and ten percent recording. You know, really, really mm-hmm. amazing. And he loved telling stories about Duck Dunn. You know, his famous uh, bass player partner and stuff. And you know, just what what a blast to work with these people bringing all this experience all this stuff and they all they want to do is have a good time you know um they've already slayed their dragons they just want to you know make a good record make some good music and uh it's a pleasure to work with them really and and he's the first guy too you know first guy on the album so and, and you just mentioned, you know, uh, being on Saturday Night Live, and you have a show coming up. We're going to be working with a, another Saturday Night Live uh, musician in a couple months. Oh yeah, uh, G. E. Smith. Oh, G. E. Smith. Yeah, yeah. He played a lot on Saturday Night Live. Sure. Yeah, we're going to be together. It's already sold out. We got a show down at Yorma. Yorma's Ranch, Yorma's Fur Peace Ranch, uh, down in um, Ohio, there, southern Ohio, and uh, yeah, so me and uh, and GE, we've done a few gigs together from time to time, so they're doing sort of a telemasters thing with me and him, so that should be fun, and then uh, um, some other gigs after that, and some gigs before that too. My little. Ohio swing of uh, kicking off the Telemasters album. Okay, and if people want to you know, learn more about that, it's on your website. You want to give that? Yep. Uh, Everything's plug. on my website, arlenroth.com, A R L E N R O T H, Arlen Roth. It's on there. And, uh, you know, we'll keep adding some other. Things. I know I'm doing this Legends TV show. Um, I don't know when that. I think it's April 19th, right before the tour. Doing that up in Massachusetts. That's a big show, and they've already done about a hundred shows there. That reaches a lot of a lot of states, and uh, of course, then it ends up on YouTube and stuff. So that's really cool. So I'm looking forward to that, you know, and we're just going to roll out the album and 
be on the road doing as many gigs as we possibly can. I got a gig coming up in New York City for that at the Cutting Room, which will be May 3rd. That'll be at the Cutting Room. That'll be the East Coast release of the uh, album and, uh, you know, big party and stuff. So looking forward to it. And, and you also have recently released uh, Painted Black, uh, and it, it's your uh, tribute to uh, the Stones. And yeah, you, acoustic. Yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit of uh, you and Lexi worked with uh, Keith Richards, uh, but you have a longer well, he's history the with album. them. He's on the album. Okay. You know. We ne- we never ran into each other or anything, but everybody's on that album. Everybody had their own day. It's like Keith Richards, Steve Miller, me, Slash, Jose Feliciano, um, on and on and on. You know, there's like a million people. Everybody wanted to pay tribute to Les Paul, obviously. So um, it was a great album. It's also it was a it was a PBS uh, special too. It was on TV. Uh, you know, showing all the sessions and stuff. Okay, and, and you, you've uh, worked with uh, Mick Taylor as well. Sure. Oh yeah, Mick Taylor, yeah, good uh, friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, I'm sure uh, Mick ha- has a lot to say about his you know, five or six years with the Stones. What uh, you know, what what did he have to say about being the lead guitarist for the greatest band? Uh, we didn't really talk about it too much at that time. It didn't seem like it was a good subject to bring up. Oh, okay. Yeah, but and, he. But on the video, you know, he played with me, and we played together, and we talked about things. And he's a very soft-spoken guy. He's very uh, not a man of many words. So it was hard for me to get to draw stuff out of him, you know, very shy. So that was in the early days of Hotlicks video, a lot of those things were like that, where I had to kind of do the video with the person, like Lonnie Mack, or, you know, James Burton or whoever it might have been, and I had to kind of, like, get them to – I have to make sure – because I'm the producer. You know, I'm the producer and the director, and it's my concept. And they were – some of them were just, like, frozen in front of the camera. You know, they'd be like – they'd freeze up and get scared and get nervous. Mick Taylor said to me, he said, that was the most difficult gig I've ever done. I said, really? I said, and playing with the Stones at the age of 22 – that wasn't difficult, <laughs> you know, but he said that was the toughest thing he'd ever did. I'm like, oh, man, wow. But, uh, you know, it ended up being a pretty good video, and we we hung out a lot together during that time. We did some gigs around New York City. We did some jamming together at, you know, the, the Lone Star Cafe, and uh, we played together at a club called The Bottom Line, and that was the first time I ever met Eric Johnson because Eric Johnson was opening for us. And that was like the first time Mick Taylor had performed in New York City in like forever, you know. So pretty cool. He's he's a really great guy, really nice guy. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting that uh, 
doing a video shoot with you is uh, scarier than the uh, Hyde Park concert that was what his yeah. first gig Amazing. with the Stones. <laughs> well, you know, it is, but, you know, when you're doing a video, you've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about what it is you do, you know. I'm a self-taught musician, just like most of us are, but I had to delve deeply into what it was about. You know, I, I wrote my first book, Slide Guitar. I wrote that when I was 19. And that's still the number one slide guitar book in the world. So I had to kind of like take apart what it was about me that made me tick. And also I was always involved in teaching privately, you know. Um, I didn't have a gig like playing with the Stones, you know. So... uh I couldn't I couldn't hide behind my guitar, you know. I, I I people loved the way I played guitar, but I also had to explain it, talk about it. What was what's all this theory that I know just because I have an ear? What's all this technique? What is it I'm doing? Why do I do what I do, you know? Everybody wants to take lessons from me. They all want a piece of what I've got. So you have to kind of, you know, put it together and understand what what makes you tick and as you're teaching you're learning that's it Te- nothing no better way to learn than teaching you know because then you're you're digging deeper and deeper and deeper and uh so when i would have these people in front of the camera uh i already know what they're about so if they couldn't quite get to what to the subject matter, I would make sure that we did, you know. It also used to get to a point where I would I would throw questions at them and eliminate my questions. Like I did that with James Burton. You know, mm-hmm. James was had no idea what to uh, talk about. And I started throwing questions at him, and then we'd take my questions out. We would just edit my questions out, and it would just look like he was going from subject to subject. Like that, you know. And on your uh, acoustic stones CD, uh, painted black. Yeah, you have a variety of choices from their career. Uh, you know, what what did you learn about playing stone songs that you know, made them? You know, yeah, you know, the the, the uh, top, you know, rock band, you know, the Beatles and Stones are you know, the uh, two greatest bands ever. You know, what 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 did you learn about their success? Um. Well, I mean, the songs that I chose for that album were songs of theirs that were from their earlier period, which was really mm-hmm. the the time I cared most about them, you know, I started to not really pay too much attention to them after a certain point. But I think that I tried to get their classic material. And I think one thing was that when I started doing acoustic versions of the songs, I realized that that's probably how they wrote. Most of these songs were with an acoustic guitar, you know, just sitting around and coming up with, you know, Lady Jane or Painted Black or, you know, 
it was nice to evoke or invoke uh, Brian Jones, because Brian Jones was such a big part of, of their sound in those early days, and people don't uh, acknowledge him enough. I mean, it was really his band, you know, in the very beginning. So, um, and I've done Stone songs before. I did the last time on, um, I think it was my Lonely Street album, which is like the rarest of all my albums, um, which is only on vinyl, you know, Uh, and cassette. I mean, it never came out as anything else. There's no CDs of it or anything. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, I just I just wanted to attack those songs that I loved so much but it was it was great to um to to have that take on it because also a lot of those songs did have some acoustic guitar or some slide guitar mm-hmm. in them you know like no mm-hmm. expectations or prodigal right. son so I it was also it made sense to me as a follow up to slide guitar because I was playing a lot of slide on it you know you know, and I noticed on your uh, website you had a photo of you and Jeff Beck, and of right. course you're uh, you, you two around antique cars. Uh, uh, you know that is a combination that has to you know we have to spend a few minutes talking about uh, Jeff and antique cars. Well, that's my '38 Buick Street Rod. And Jeff Beck had actually come to pay his respects after I lost my wife and daughter. And mm-hmm. uh, so he just came. He said, are you anywhere near Newbera? And I'm like, Newbera? I said, oh, Newburgh, Newburgh, New York. He was flying into New Newburgh. So then they came, and uh, we spent some time together that afternoon with the car and stuff, and we were talking about maybe doing him doing a Hot Licks video for me at that point. Um, but we had met earlier a few times, and we played together with Les Paul and uh, also met oh, yeah. at a NAMM show, which was cool because he he knew, uh, he was able to, to talk about my albums. He knew more tracks on my albums than I did on his, seriously. He was going, a change is going to come. When a man loves a woman, he was just going crazy about all my stuff. And I'm like, wow, you know, Jeff Beck is a fan. It was really cool. You know? He's a terrific guitar player. Oh, yeah. He's he, he's one of the best. He is, definitely. He's somebody that's always continued to grow, you know, with his art form. And... Yeah, on uh, you know for uh, telemasters and uh, slide guitar summit, you, you have as your producer Tom Hambridge. Uh, yes, he has uh, an astonishing legacy as well. It, you know, why did you? Uh, pick him to help with the production of uh, those two CDs? Well, all my albums have always been self-produced. Like, I've almost never had an actual producer. Um, and so then, 
he and I used to play together around uh, Massachusetts and Martha's Vineyard, and we did a couple of shows for President Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton's birthday and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. we played with Kate Taylor, James Taylor, all those folks. And we became friends, really good friends. And then one day I started looking, hearing about him again with all these blues artists like Buddy Guy, who was one of my heroes, and, you know, all these people he was producing. So I got in touch with him. I said, hey, listen, man, why don't we do a project together? Let's do something. And I, he was totally in And I, I found out he was living in Nashville, too. So he got the whole um, the whole thing, you know, in terms of getting helping me gather the people together who were in Nashville, and we worked in this great recording studio there. So it was very exciting for me to like do. I also did Toolin' Around, which was my classic album from '89 to '93. I did a lot of that in Nashville as well, which was also an album that had a lot of duets. You know, me and Dwayne Eddy and, and uh, Brian Setzer from the Stray Cats and, you know, folks like that. Duke Robillard, Jerry Douglas. Um, we had this song I wrote called Let It Slide, which is, of course, a slide song. Uh, but other than that, you know, Tom was just seemed like a natural choice. Plus, he's such a great drummer, that which is how I first got to know him. Uh, so he he was able to play drums on it, too. You know, so you get two for, two for the price of one. <laughs> and he's always working with this wonderful bass player friend of mine, Tommy McDonald. Uh, so, you know, they're like a real team of bass and drums. Okay. And how do you choose, uh, you know, you know, you're in the greater New York area, you know, what is it about you know, studios in Nashville where you know, you're going? You know, what are you looking for when you decide to do recording in a studio? Well, these studios that we did are classic, famous studios. You know, I mean, I let Tom choose those. Um I guess he probably got a good they're real music row studios, you know, that are oozing hit records from the walls, you know. The minute you hear mm-hmm. the minute you hear what you played on there it just works. I, I something about it. There's something uh uncanny that you can't even put your finger on, but uh the first studio I think was called Soundstage. And that was amazing. And then the second studio we used was like around the corner, and that was Ronnie's place. And Ronnie meaning Ronnie Millsap, the great uh, singer. So that was his studio, and that place became very legendary too. And, um, of course, it's it's not so much the studio, but it's the the people that make it happen, you know. But uh, we just brought in all the artists, and uh, you got good engineers and – people who are used to working with that room, you know, and, um, you know, a a tried-and-true professional studio, not a place that has to work out any of the bugs, you know, a place that's used to people coming in, making hit records, uh, and just having that sound. You know, there's that certain 
Nashville something. I don't know what it is, you know, but I think it's more of a spirit than it is something that's as tangible as like, you know, tape and whatever, you know. That's okay. what I think. And, anyway. Okay, and uh coming up soon, uh people can read more about you know, these background stories in uh, Vintage Guitar Magazine, and you, know, you had another interview with um, uh, the uh, Buddy Guys Legends Magazine. Yeah, that was a you big know, interview. These... Buddy Guys Legends must have talked to me for about two hours, also. Yeah, uh, what you know when when these become available? What uh, what can the uh, readers? Uh, expect to learn about you um gee i don't know (laughs) just what i've been talking about for the last hour and a half no no um (laughs) you know it's there's always different um different aspects you know like how i was raised or how i started off early in my career or you know, what it was like to play with this one or that one. Um, Because my sideman career is a whole career unto itself, just like what I've done as a solo artist, you know. And sometimes it's been parallel. They've been parallel. So, yeah, I think they'll learn a lot. You know, they'll learn a lot. They'll also learn a lot about, like, my father, his philosophy. He was a very famous cartoonist for The New Yorker magazine and a great painter and how he just encouraged me you know to be a guitar player and he just saw it he just could see it he said i can just picture that you're going to be a guitar player i just see it you know and so he and i used to hang out in all the music shops when i was a kid you know and that story in that uh Stones album there where I was 11 years old buying my first guitar, my first electric guitar, Mm -hmm. and Charlie Mm -hmm. Watts was there in the store, you know, and uh, I recognized him right away and I got his autograph and then years later I was on the BBC in in London, I think it was in 1988, I was on the BBC in London, I was telling that story and all of a sudden the phone lit up. And it was them calling say, Charlie remembered you. Charlie couldn't believe that you were the first kid in America who recognized him, you know. I said, oh, how could I not recognize him, you know. I mean, he looked so, he was so obviously who he was. But this was 1964, you know. So uh, um, they said, yeah, you were the first kid to ever recognize him, and Charlie couldn't believe it, you know, so. I remember his autograph. He signed the Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, you know. <laughs> so I was just 11 years old. I was getting my, my first little Japanese electric guitar at a little shop called Ben's Music on 48th Street, where it used to be all music shops. Now there's nothing left there. It's a shame. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and, 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 Arlen, uh, you just mentioned your... Uh, uh, Dad was a cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, yeah, there's a uh, art show for, for your dad's art, artwork. Uh, 
Can you tell us? Yeah, about there's a, a place that I play, a place that I play here near New York called uh, the Falcon. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I'm playing the Falcon, and they. I said, you know, they always have a show on the walls. They always they have a, it's like a gallery, but you also perform. And I've never. I these shows. A lot of the artwork I was not a fan of. So I said, one day I'd love to play there, and I'd love it to be with my father's artwork on the walls. So that's what's up there now. We played there the other day, uh, had the show, and uh, his work is still up on the walls. It's going to be there for two months. It's a great club. You know, so you have his paintings and his cartoons. Okay. And his drawings and, uh, as well. And, and, and when was he? You know, what uh, time period are most of his uh, artworks on? You know, from? Uh, I would say that the the most stuff at the show is probably from the forties and fifties and sixties. But okay. he was active from thirty seven. You know, with the New Yorker. He was from mm-hmm. 1937 to 2012, and he lived to be a hundred. Wow. So he was, and of course his cartoons still to this day are being published everywhere. Uh, he's, you know, he was not only in in uh, New Yorker; he was also in Playboy, in Esquire, in the Saturday Evening Post, in the New York Times. Uh, you know, and he was one of four Roth brothers all of whom were cartoonists. So that's why he became Al Ross, R-O-S-S, because they all had to take different pen names. Uh, But he was the most successful, uh, and, you know, of course, I'm going to say he was the best, but they were all really good, you know, the four Roth brothers. So pretty pretty amazing legacy. And... You know, with you know, you know your daughters, uh, you know, be, you know, being involved in music, and you know your Hot Licks series, and you gave several examples of you know, what second, third generation of people, you know, watching the series. You know, what's the secret of getting? Uh, younger people involved in developing the, these skills is, you know, I'm sure some of it's genetics, but you know, how, how do you just keep enforcing, uh, you know, just stick with it? I think it's just inspiring them, you know, uh, everything's yeah. inspiration. You know, you can't, in the end, we're all really our own teachers, you know, we could only have our teachers holding our hands for so long, you know. But you want to be in, you want to be inspired, you know. Um, like I always got to be around my dad, uh, who was just doing cartooning as a freelance thing, and he was able to watch his children grow up and not be a nine-to-five guy, and that to me was just always the natural order of things, you know. Uh, he'd take me to the park. We lived right around the corner from Bronx Park, and I'd go out and hit a hundred home runs, you know. And he'd chase after every ball, 
And uh, then I had the same kind of way I brought my daughters up, you know. It was like, let's go. Oh, it's a warm day in February. Let's go out and uh, and and play some baseball, you know. And they both became gigantic, you know, ball players. So it's like just it's all about raising your children and about uh, not missing that, you know, not missing that, that absolute joy and, you know, just experiencing, I mean, I think that it's like me, like I, I picked out the sounds that I wanted to hear when I was growing up, you know, I would be uh, upstate New York, but I would tune in WWVA, you know, from Wheeling, West Virginia, Mm -hmm. so I could hear Mm -hmm. some steel guitar. So I could hear some country. You never heard any country around New York. But I had had this pleasure of getting a big, you know, tube radio or, or like one of my little transistor radios and pulling in those far-off stations and hearing what sounded like another world. I mean, look at what WSM in, in Nashville, you know, uh, meant to the whole southern part of the country that everybody could listen to Maybell Carter, you know, and all of a sudden everybody wanted to play like that. Everybody gathered around the radio and listened to the Carter family and the Stoneman family and Flat and Scruggs and whoever it might have been, you know, or Bill Monroe. And they say, well, I want to do that. I want to play, and I want to play at the Opry one day, you know. And you hear the Grand Old Opry. It was like, man, it just it, to them it must have seemed like a million miles away. You know, just like that fantasy world of what do these people look like and what do they, what makes them sound that way? And, you know, Ernest Tubb, Patsy Cline. So the thing is, I grew up, you know, loving and listening to artists like that of my generation, you know. Um, I used to have a little apartment when I first moved to Woodstock. Uh, the apartment was so small that when you opened up the front door, it hit the couch you know, which was on the other wall, you know. I think it was about like 10 by 8 with onions growing out of their package, you know, because I didn't even know how to cook. But the onions were growing. and uh, <laughs> But I would have this radio where I could tune in at night, get those those radio stations that played country music, and some of the blues stations too, like from Detroit. I could pick up Detroit. I could pick up Chicago. I'd pick up Honesdale, Pennsylvania, where I would get a lot of the country that I would hear. And Wheeling, West Virginia, the Jamboree, you know. Uh-huh. Charlie Pride, listen to Charlie Pride, listening to the early Dolly Parton stuff, listening to all that. Uh, and it was just it was just phenomenal. You know, it was like such... There's some periods in your life where you just grow so much when it's an art form that you love and you just, it just explodes, you know. It's like when I wrote my book, like I was telling you, when I wrote my book when I was 19, I'm like, how do I know all this stuff? How is it that I know this? You know, where did it come from? It's almost like it, it materialized, you know. So but by the time I was 19, I'd already been playing for nearly 10 years, you know, so. Okay. And they gave me a $150 advance, and like, what are you going to do with the money? It was like I was this little boy. Oh, I'm going to put it in my piggy bank, you know, $150 advance for that book, you know, so. 
Uh, it, but anyway, you when, were saying something. Um, I forget what the question was. Okay. I, I, I have plenty. I, I have plenty more. But it, it, when you know, you take um, you know your band out on the road, uh, you know, to, you know, throughout the spring. Uh, you know, who, who's in, in your band? Uh, you tell me. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, if there's, there's a bass player, is a guy named Eddie Denise, who also plays with Dion, you know, from Dion and the Belmonts, mm-hmm. and uh, oh. great bass player. Uh, and my other guitar player, my partner, is Chris Foley, who's a terrific uh, guitar player in his own right, who studied with me for a while, and also uh, he lives in Brooklyn, in New York. He plays with lots of different people. And the drummer is Peter O'Brien, who also plays with Orleans and John Hall, who was the guy who formed Orleans, you know. And at one point, he wow. was our, our congressman here, too. So, but, uh, yeah, so you know, it's a great little band, and I've had them together now for, for quite some time. And... Yeah, you just mentioned uh, Dion and uh, is uh, on his New York is my home CD. He he does a song with uh, uh, Paul Simon. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. So there's a little bit of connection to you know both of those musicians, and then sure. But uh, Jimmy Vivino is also on that. Uh, CD and he's on uh, Slide Guitar Summit. Uh, so yeah, why aren't I know, on that CD, man? I'm I don't like it. I'm mad. <laughs> no, what happened with Paul Simon was uh, when I did the Cape Man with Paul Simon, which was his ill-fated uh, Broadway play, uh, but the music was great. I remember we were recording it, and I said, "Paul, this stuff is so good, man. It sounds great." And he said to me, well, at least I know Dion will like it, you know. So then I told that to Eddie, my bass player, and Eddie said, oh, man, I can't wait to tell that to Dion, that Paul Simon said, you know, he hoped it was something that Dion would like. So, because a lot of the music was kind of like 50s, you know, New York, doo-wop, kind of, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, acapella even. Some of it was even acapella, but it was it's great. So, that maybe helped bring Paul and um, and Dion together. Yeah, it it just seems like both both of them have, have written wonderful portraits of New York City. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> yeah, they're both really so much of New York. You know, they're so like mm-hmm. Dion is from the Bronx, like me. And Paul Simon's from Queens, and um, you know we're we're all New Yorkers at heart. And um, Paul and uh, Dion, there's more of a connection there than most people would even think. You know, yeah, it's just one of the just interesting things about having you know, uh, you, know you as a guest and. Uh, couple of your CDs, you know, it's just 
all the connections that you have to uh, so many artists and uh, uh, one of I don't know if you can hear all the dings, but um, uh, you know one of my uh, friends, uh, Sereni, said, oh, "Oh, this is just really amazing! Uh, all, how many of these uh, people?" Yeah, you know, she she's heard of, and uh, she mentions um, sometimes. Oh yeah, I remember uh, listening to Ronnie Millsaps, and you know, you mentioned him, uh, his, his studio earlier. So yeah, you know, that that's just one of the uh, just enjoyable aspects of having you as our concluding artist for our musical trilogy this week. Oh, nice. Yeah, and uh, you know, on uh, tooling around Woodstock, that, that's with with Levon Helm and mm-hmm. his daughter Amy makes an appearance, and you know, yep. Amy Singing has with my daughter. Singing with my daughter Lexi. Yeah, yeah, and that's and Amy. Amy's gone on to have a yeah. Successful uh, solo career as well. Uh, uh, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know, you know this father and daughter uh, team and you know Levon's legacy as as well? I think it's just interesting. Um. you know, at that point at all. But when she came to the session, uh, it was pretty amazing because there was this instant kind of electricity when she walked in. And then I realized, of course, this is also the house where she was raised, where she grew up, you know. And uh, her dad was playing drums, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. singing also because Levon... He started singing again on my album uh, when he, after he had his uh, throat cancer, uh, you know, thing, problems. And so when he started singing on that, uh, that's before he did his Dirt Farmer record. But they ended up coming out at about the same time. But the minute Amy walked in, it was like instant connection, you know, just and she's mm-hmm. such a good singer. She's just an incredible singer, and um, a great, a great spirit. Just a wonderful, wonderful person, you know. And uh, so, yeah. So she was on that. I don't even know if there's, if there's a little bit of her on that DVD because there was a DVD that went with that album. Um, I think she must be on there. And also singing with Lexi, too. You know, and that was like mm-hmm. me also with Sonny Landreth and um, uh, Bill Kirchin is also on that album, too. So, you know, a little bit of that duet thing going on. But it was such an honor to have Levon singing, you know, because we didn't think he was going to sing. I just thought he was playing drums and we were using his studio, you know, at his barn, his barn mm-hmm. there in Woodstock. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> but I I did a couple of gigs with Amy, 
After that, Amy's out even doing some gigs now with Cindy, Cindy Cash Dollar. They're doing a few gigs together. Um, so, yeah, terrific, terrific singer, great singer. Okay, and yeah, you know, we're kind of approaching 20-some minutes left. But, uh, you know, we have to get to your work on the movie Crossroads. Uh, I always enjoyed watching that movie when I was in uh, high school. How did you uh, get involved in this movie, and what was your role? Well, it's it's sort of a never-ending saga, the whole Crossroads thing. I mean, my God, you know. But it's like a day doesn't go by when there's some other post somewhere on Facebook or wherever about me and my involvement in Crossroads, you know. Um, But uh, it was, you know, very simple. It was like uh, I got a phone call one day when I was living up uh, about an hour north of New York City. I got a phone call from... um, it was from Walter Hill, who was the director of the film. And he said that uh, Ry Cooter had told him that I was the guy to uh, do this movie with Ralph Macchio because Ralph Macchio lives on Long Island. And we had to make Ralph Macchio believable as a guitar player in the film. So... Uh, and then Cooter called me up, and Cooter said, "All right, you know, you'll be, you'll be creating the pieces. You'll be, you've got the script. You will, you know, do this piece for that scene. You know, like there's all these scenes that required guitar playing. Uh, and he had to do everything in the movie, from classical to slide, to acoustic blues to electric blues. Um, so uh, they set it up that I would. Uh, I remember they even had to rent a car for me." Because uh, I had to drive out to his place on Long Island four days a week, four days a week for two months, uh, and every one of those days I just worked with him and worked with him and worked with him. So I tried to give him enough of a foundation in faking the guitar, you know, because he had never even played the guitar before, never even held one, which is kind of rare for his generation, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he knew played trumpet or something, but he never played a string instrument. So it was really cool because he would like watch how I walked, how I carried a guitar case, how I sat when I played. Um, As an actor, it was interesting watching him work because he tried to absorb everything about me as a guitar player, not just um, the playing, you know. And um, so that was really interesting. And to get to know him during that period of time, we had a great, great time together. And I'd always go out to Long Island, and sometimes we'd, you know, go out to dinner. Um, and he loved to play with my my daughter Jillian. She like, you know, she was just a baby then. And um, I guess this was eighty four, nineteen eighty four, I think. And we've, you know, so I we had the two months of working together before. I went to L.A., and we went in the studio, 
and before I went down to Mississippi for six weeks, which was amazing, shooting on shooting on location, you know. But uh, it was great going into the studio in L.A. because who's on drums? My all-time favorite drummer, Jim Keltner, who I, like, fantasized about being able to play with, you know. And there's Jim Keltner playing wow. drums. I'm like, my God. And, you know, and Cooter and... Uh, the bass player from um, David Lindley's band and the keyboard player from Tom Petty's band. And it was, like, incredible. And I, I, I found some of that stuff on cassette recently in my basement, and I ended up putting it up on uh, SoundCloud so you can hear, like, some of the original... When we were just working out ideas to, like, do the ending, uh, you know, and the jams and the different things in the movie, because I had to have them on cassette so I could teach them to Ralph, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is long before Steve Vai. I mean, it's like seven months before Steve Vai even became uh, a part of it, you know. Uh, but it was such an amazing experience. I mean, every day being in another part of Mississippi, usually a cotton field or an old hotel or, uh, you know, out somewhere where they had a rain machine making the rain, you know, and um, <laughs> it was, it was, ama- it was what an experience, you know, it was really, really great. And it was seven months long, you know. Okay. And you know, we need to talk about the famous you know, finale of, movie with yeah, Ralph which in my opinion is like Steve. the worst part of the movie you know because that's when the movie got ruined that's when it was no longer about the blues and they de- they ended up dating it as a 1985 metal you know heavy metal thing you know not to put down Steve Vai because Steve Vai and I became you know lifelong friends as a result of working on it together but the original script called for it was blues, and it, the ending was a slide duel between Ralph and Ry Cooter, which meant me and Ry Cooter. So when the mm-hmm. the directors, the director and the producer decided they wanted it to be more like the Karate Kid, you know, they just wanted to follow the suit of a Karate Kid. So they had to get this guitar player who was like a wise guy, you know, would come in and be. Uh, you know, try to like beat him, and uh, it was so so bad. You know, so dumb. And me and Ry Cooter were like really upset about it, and Cooter was upset also because Cooter was going to be the visual guy. He was going to actually be the Steve Vai part. You know, so then he lost the thing of actually being in the film. So, uh, you know. I mean, so you can hear the beginnings of that slide duel between me and Rye. That's on the SoundCloud tracks that I posted. You know. But to me, it totally went downhill. Once they chose that ending, it was like, all right, this movie will forever be dated. It's that period of time, you know. That's a good uh, good point. But... uh... I'll say. I mean, I was the one that was hired. I was the one that was hired to make the movie authentic, and then they just took it right out of my hands. You know, 
because I made everything. I had to make sure that Robert Johnson's guitar was the correct guitar. I stopped the whole day of shooting because the actor showed up with the wrong tuning pegs on his guitar. You know, they were chrome. Mm. And back in the 30s, they were supposed to be nickel and very dull. So mm. we had to, we had to tear down that whole scene that day because it was the wrong guitar. You know, a, a lot of times I was in the director's chair. The director would tell me, Arlen, you know more about this scene than me. Why don't you sit in the director's chair? And it was such a thrill. And I think he did it to me, you know, just for me, just to make me feel kind of like cool, too, you know, because it was. But I'd be in the middle of a Mississippi cotton field, direct, all of a sudden I'm directing. I'm sitting in the director's chair. It's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, what a just... feeling. And, and, and you know that's just interesting about the you know just the little details that go into you know, that movie or any yeah a, any movie the you know the uh, tuning the, the the just getting the right uh, uh, oh, type of absolutely. metal tuning thing. so yeah uh, 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 I just hope that the listeners just realize how how much. Uh, importance to some of those small things that that really make a difference, and and, and you know that's one well, of the nice things that about. Still see, yeah, I mean stuff. Some people that's I can't believe it that they actually write on Facebook. They go, "Is Ralph really playing that stuff?" You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, how can anybody in the world think that Ralph Macchio is actually playing those guitar parts? But I made him so believable that mm-hmm. it's. Possible, you know. I was tired of seeing all these movies where the guitar player is in the wrong spot on the neck, or they're only shooting him from the neck up, you know, or you know, whatever it might be, um, or that the music is not in sync with what you're seeing, you know. So, as a musician who cares very much about that stuff, if I see one little bad thing like that in a movie, it just ruins it for me. It ruins mm-hmm. it because that's my area. Of expertise, but what they wanted me to do was not only make Ralph believable, but also make the film more authentic from the standpoint of the guitar scenes and the music scenes. So um, I took that really seriously, and that was great because every day there was something that they needed me for, you know. So. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it was L.A. or Mississippi, you know, uh, but it was quite a, quite an experience, for sure. And, and, and you know, that's just one of the, you know, positive aspects of this interview today is just, you know, the learning and inspire. You know, we brought up inspiring earlier, and. I think it's just one one of the lessons that I, I hope the listeners uh, come away with as you know you just start winding down the show is just how hard artists work and you know, whether it's the authors uh, we have on or uh, you know the trilogy of musicians this week and uh-huh. and, and yeah you just really. Are driving home that point. I, you know, I just hope it helps 
Yeah, the, uh, 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 That's why I did artists. an album called Drive It Home, because yep. I'm driving it home. <laughs> I have my first acoustic okay. album was called Drive It Home. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And, it, and okay, I just walked right into that one. But, um, <laughs> yeah, and it's Steve, and, you know, Steve has gone on to have uh, you know, really a distinguished career as well since you know the filming of uh crossroads wrapped up and you know, uh, sure. you know i i've watched a lot of his videos on uh youtube as well and he he uh seems to be doing like at least the ones i've seen were uh faith inspired type songs mhm just nice to see what he's doing and yeah when um you know we're maybe like nine ten minutes left but you know, you, you know you've mentioned so so many artists that i'm sure everyone in the audience knows at least uh, you know couple songs by um several of your friends um but who, who's someone that you haven't worked with that you would like to have a collaboration, to, you know, record a song or post hmm. uh, album? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, it's like you know, like now I'm getting to do this album with John Sebastian, who, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I was just going to do another tribute album. Like one of my, because I did one for uh, the Stones, I did one for Simon and Garfunkel, and I did one for Dylan. Um, and but he said, "Look, I'll join in. I'll be a part of the album." You know, um, it's like me doing a Stones album and having Keith Richards do it with me. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I would, I'd like to see some. I'd like to do some collaborations with. Maybe people like that, maybe like Keith Richards or um Wow. You know, there's just so many people that uh you just know that it would be fun working with them, that would be a good experience. Because um, I wouldn't want to work with somebody who I just admire their music but they turn out to be like a, a not a nice guy or not a nice woman, you know. Um but you never know. You never know. I mean, I would love to do collaborating with, uh, you know, there's a lot of other guitar players out there that I think I could do some great work with. Um, you know, I have this uh, soul project coming up that I'm doing with the great Jerry Jamat, who's a bass player who I worked with for many years. And Jerry's on all that classic B.B. King and, uh, mm. you know, uh all those great. Well, he was even did stuff back with the Muscle Shoals people. But he's on a lot of the Aretha stuff and a lot of the King Curtis. So we're going to be uh, collaborating on those tracks, doing uh, you know a, a very very uh, serious soul album, you know uh, R and B and soul. And uh, <clears throat> he's just. A unique bass player. The minute he touches the bass, you know it's him. You know, 
Uh, and I've always been a real sort of connoisseur of great bass players. I've gotten to play with John Entzel. I've gotten to play with Jack Bruce. I've gotten to play with so many wow. greats, you know. And Jack Bruce and I did that television show in Germany. It's kind of a nightmare, really, but I got to play with them anyway. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, people like that, I mean, I'd love to do... A lot of people even hit me up for like that I should be doing a part two of the telly masters because there are so many great telly players. I couldn't include them all on the album, but there's a lot of guys that are really uh, making big names for themselves, kind of like like a younger generation of telly guys, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to work with. I'd love to do some stuff with Bonnie Raitt. She and I know each other for a long, long time from the days when I was with John Prine. And wow. um, you just never know. I mean, you never know who who could come down the pike, but I certainly, uh, I'd appreciate if my phone would ring maybe more. And, um, <laughs> you know, people say like, oh, you know, could you please do that like Arlen Roth? Well, why don't you just hire Arlen Roth, you know? Because they say that sometimes. Like a guy will come to me and say, well, you believe... That I was in the studio the other day, and somebody told me to play it like you. I said, well, tell them next time to call me, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of nice. But uh, I don't know. I, it, there's just so many great, you know, so many great people out there. It's it's hard to, to uh, narrow it down, you know. Um, but, you know, it would be a thrill, a thrill to just keep on going with it as long as I can. And uh, like, for example, you know, Tom Hambridge, my producer, produces Buddy Guy. And Buddy Guy did a video uh -huh. for me for Hot Licks. But I would like to play with Buddy Guy on an album. You know, let's let's do a track together, you know. Um, you know, people, because he was a hero of mine growing up. So Yeah, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So he was he was a big influence on me, um, and so there's just so many folks out there. You know, I'm so honored that I got to do stuff with Levon, uh, you know, and, and that I got to do that stuff with Johnny Winter. There's a lot of these artists, they're gone already, you know, and uh, we got to do something of a permanent nature, um, and uh, that's that's really what I'm all about is working with as many greats as I possibly can, and I want to leave as much great music behind as possible, you know? Well, it, it, you know, this has been just a really fascinating insight into you know, your legendary career, working with so many other people you know, yeah. really been the soundtrack of our lives. You know, you mentioned John Entwistle. He was another one of the uh, Woodstock performers that, you know, right, Johnny and J J yeah. Right. You know, so we've gotten a you know, nice little education uh, you know, for, from uh, uh, Woodstock today and you know, while you know, working with Jack Bruce from uh, Cream Aren't yeah, you know, another I interesting, um, you know, per 
person you're you know drawing into the discussion so it, um you know, the, you know, the, you know, we you know we have to have you back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so sometime soon, and yeah, you know, we're down to you know, just under four minutes. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, what's your website again? Uh, you know, do you want to plug uh, where people can find your books and uh, see you uh, uh, over the spring? Yeah. Well. You know, my website, ArlenRoth.com, A-R-L-E-N-R-O-T-H, and you see my albums there, you see some history, you'll see some stuff about Crossroads, you'll see the links to those Crossroads tracks, um, you'll see, of course, tons of photographs. It's a newly revamped site, which is uh, much more sort of up-to-date, and, uh, you know, you get to see the, the, the gigs that are coming up. And that's sort of like a, a different thing every day, you know, new gigs coming down the pike. And, uh, you know, when the album will be released, like the official release for this, for the Telemasters, I believe, is February 22nd, because there's already been hundreds of copies sent out to all the radio stations and also to the press. Uh, and I think we're going to have like a cover story on Vintage Guitar Magazine about it. And uh, I've been on the cover of that magazine before. And, uh, you know, just look forward to, you know, taking a good ride with this album because it's got a lot of star power on it. And I think it's got a lot of um, eclectic, radio-friendly music, you know. Um, so... A great vocalist on uh, on Promised Land, a sweet Mikey C, who's a good friend of mine from Nashville, who works a lot with the Oak Ridge Boys, and he's uh, he's singing on that song, and of course Jack Pearson's vocals are great, and Cropper sings on that White Lightning song, which is not the White Lightning most people know from George Jones, but uh, it's called White Lightning, and Cropper. It's the first time I've heard Cropper sing, so there's a historic moment. <laughs> but you know, again, okay, it's just cool. such a joy to work with these people, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. in this case, you get an album where you get to work with 14 of them. It's just incredible. So, cool. okay, I hope everybody enjoys it and, and li likes it out there, and that. Um, Everybody who's bought it already has given me great feedback uh, and that they really, really do love it. So okay, that's, you guys. That's fun. We're down to seconds here. Um, thank okay. you, Arlen. And, and, Mark, you have to say goodbye now. Hey, uh, th thanks for producing these uh, three shows, uh, Barbara. And thank you, Arlen. We will be talking soon. And thanks, everyone, for uh listening to the three shows this week. Keep checking the website for all the other great shows we have lined up. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you, Orlin. Thank you. See you out there on the road. Take care. All right, thanks. Bye. <laughs>